One of my favourite lines from the series MASH, which I'm sure many of you have watched. Sometime, some of you may have watched it many times, in fact. <clears throat> One of my favourite lines was the statement, this was the, la- the latest war to end all wars. Uh, the point, of course, they were making was that we never seem to learn from history. Uh, the wars keep happening. In fact, isn't this the one lesson we've learned from history, that we never learn from history? No matter how bad our experience is, we never seem to be able to learn our lessons so we avoid the same mistake the next time. And if you think about the world today, you may see that once more happening. Because that begs the question whether there are patterns in history uh, from which we can learn. Historians and thinkers have debated that question over many years. Some would say, yes, there's a meaningful pattern to history, and if we can find it, we can do something to change the way things happen. Karl Marx is a classic one. He thought he'd found a pattern in history revolving around the unequal distribution of power and resources. He he said if you followed his model, you'd eventually arrive at a utopian classless society. He called it socialism. And, of course, we know it didn't work, did it? No. Socialist... Societies that haven't worked any more than any other utopian community uh, that was set up in the 19th century. Social societies have been found to fail just as badly as the, the capitalist societies that they, they're critiquing. But, of course, the other side of the debate thinks that's, there's no surprise in that. Um, those who argue there are no patterns to be found in history say, well, that's how it goes. They argue that so often the course of history is a matter of pure chance. I I love the story of the discovery of penicillin. I'm sure you've probably heard about it at school when you were younger, Uh, how Alexander Fleming discovered uh, a window had been left open when he went on holidays. He came back and uh, the the bacteria that had been left out in a Petri dish had had been killed. And that, of course, led him to uh, discover that there was this uh, element uh, that he, he called penicillin, which uh, destroyed those, those bacteria. I mean, how often has history depended on some, radi- some, some random event or on individuals doing something extraordinary or unexpected? And yet we can't build a theory on those instances either, can we? In fact, I want to suggest that there are patterns to be found if we look in the right place and... Um, the reason I say that is that here in this book of Judges we find exactly such a pattern, such a set of factors uh, that help us to see sometimes how history works. Well, as we just heard on that, that little short video, the book of Judges begins after the death of Joshua with the people of Israel attempting to finish their occupation of the land of Canaan. At first they have some success, but as time goes on they fail to follow up the victories God's given them victories over half the country, but they, they don't push in and, and uh, complete the job. Groups of Canaanites are left behind all over their territory, despite the warnings God had given them to rid the land of all other nations in case they corrupted the worship of Israel. And as a result, in Judges 2, the angel of the Lord appears in Bochim with this message. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I promised to your ancestors. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. 
For your part, do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my command. See what you've done? So now I say, I'll not drive them out before you, but they shall become adversaries to you, and their God shall be a snare to you. And the narrative that follows fills out the ramifications of this dire warning. The Israelites have failed to drive out the Canaanites and they're now being corrupted by their pagan worship. They're turning away from the Lord to, do, to, to worship other gods. And then develops a pattern of history that sets the tone, essentially, for the rest of the whole Old Testament. The people turn away from worship of the true and living God to worship pagan idols. This results in the Lord becoming angry with them. So he gives them up to the attacks of the surrounding nations. They're defeated and when they turn back to God he raises up judges or charismatic military leaders who save them from the hands of their enemies. And yet despite this respite from the attacks of their enemies that the, the respite is always short-lived. Why? Well, because we see in verse chapter 2, verse 17 because they would not listen even to their judges for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their ancestors had walked who'd obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And so as time goes on, it gets worse and worse. The pattern of history that emerges is a downward spiral in which every step they take forward is followed by two steps backwards. Until in chapter 2, verse 20, didn't take long into the end of the book, did it? Chapter 2, verse 20, God is so angry with Israel that he says he'll no longer drive out any of the nations that Joshua had left behind. And so we come to the first of the judges, Othniel. Uh, we're not going to talk much about him, he's, but he's unusual. He's unusual purely for the fact that there's nothing unusual about him. All the, almost all the other judges have some particular feature that distinguishes them. But we're not told anything special about Othniel at all, except he happens to be Caleb's ne- nephew. Remember, Caleb was the one, one of the two uh, spies who went in with Joshua into the land when they were coming uh, in, the, in the Exodus, who said, yes, we can, we can take this country if God is with us. Now, maybe that this um, not saying anything about Othniel is, is deliberate. Because Othniel is in every man. He's a model of all the other judges. His story contains the pattern that all the other stories seem to follow. First, spiritual failure. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting the Lord their God and worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs. Then there's military oppression as a result of God's anger. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of King Cush and Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. And the Israelites served Cush and Rishathaim eight years. This book is full of long words, isn't it? (laughs) Congratulations to Doug who managed to, to say them properly. They call out to God in their distress. And then God sends a spirit filled saviour. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's younger brother. God gives them victory over their enemies. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. And then there's a period of peace. 
But then the Saviour dies and the cycle starts again. Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And so here's this cycle of history that repeats itself over and over again. And might I suggest not just in this book but throughout the rest of the, of the Old Testament. Kings, kings rise up, good kings are followed by bad kings. And the fortunes of the, of the nation goes up and down. And it goes all the way through until in the New Testament we have a new king who comes. Jesus Christ is the spirit-filled saviour to whom all these others point. Now following the story of Othniel, we find uh, two almost identical scenarios in the accounts of Eth- Ehud and Deborah. They're each different from the other in the detail, but the basic pattern is the same. What we find in this cycle of history is that there is a pattern, but it isn't the sort of quasi-scientific pattern suggested by Marx and people like that. Rather, it's, it's a pattern that reveals the hand of a personal God, dealing with his people in a personal fashion. There's no sense of random events shaping history according to the tricks of fate. Rather, history is seen to be in the hands of a good and just Lord. The pattern we find is... A, the patterns we find are a sign that God deals with us in a consistent and dependable way. And so we can learn from history if we'll pay attention. We can learn truths about God and truths about ourselves. So what lessons can we learn from this history of the judges? First of all, we find God's freedom of action and ours. As we read through the Judges, you'll find while there's a clear pattern of sin, punishment, repentance and rescue, there's a certain unpredictability about the time intervals involved. Uh, sometimes there's a long period of time of oppression, sometimes less. Likewise, <clears throat> there are longer and shorter periods of peace. God wants them to see that there's a, a connection between moral behaviour and divine blessing. But there's nothing mechanical about it. God enjoys personal freedom of action. Sometimes he responds quickly, other times he delays. And he gives us the same freedom even when we choose to misuse it. Secondly, we find in every case, (coughs) we find that God chooses individuals to carry out his plan of salvation. And they're often unusual people. They're certainly not perfect examples of followers of God as we saw in that video uh, Ehud is described as left-handed. Now, he may just be left-handed, but it may be that his right hand was injured, so he had to use his left, left hand. Barak was afraid to fight Sisera unless Deborah came with him. Gideon was so brave he was threshing his wheat in a, in a um, safety of a wine press when he was called to lead his people against the Amorites down in the ground so he wouldn't be seen by the Amorites as they rode past. Samson was a womanizer. Jephthah, as we heard, sacrificed his own daughter to the Lord because he'd made a foolish vow, and so he could go on. They're real people with real flaws, just like you and me. Yet God used them to shape history according to his will. But there's no sense of the judges as automatons carrying out the master plan of God. They each have their own eccentricities. There's space given to them to be individuals. There's room for the odd surprise here and there. And yet each of them is essential 
to God's plan being worked out. Thirdly, we discover that God is in command, in case we didn't know that already. One of the greatest lessons that this pattern of history teaches is is that whatever happens in history, God is in control. In the book of Judges, this is brought out time and time again. But of course, it's equally true now, isn't it? Even if we don't have a written commentary to remind us of the fact. This is an important thing to be reminded of in this day and age, uh, when there's a real fear about the future of the world. Now, people look at, at history and see the endless repetition of failure and error, of wars and lawlessness. They look at our world leaders and, and can't believe what they're seeing. Rising nationalism. All the hard work of the United Nations being snubbed by major leaders who want to maintain their national autonomy. Trade wars that threaten the stability of the world's economies. The result is a sense of futility and hopelessness that we think that we start to think that well, is there any point to life? Is there a future for us? And so people turn to a search for pleasure, or they go after some new age philosophy. Look at their stars to see what's going to happen, or you know, look at cling on to crystals in a search for hope. You name it. Or perhaps they simply give up and opt out of life. But see, the biblical view of history, as we find it in Judges, is that we're not alone. History does have purpose. God is in control. As Roman 8 reminds us, all things work together for good to those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. Next we we find that judgment follows human sin. If God is in control, one area where we see that in action is his response to our sin. Now in Judges there's a clear link between the rebellion of Israel and the withdrawal of God's protection. In fact, in many cases, it's put stronger than that. God actually takes the side of their enemies in order to chastise them. Mind you, we do have to be careful how we apply this fact in our own lives, don't we? I mean, we mustn't take on ourselves the role of God's interpreters in singling out uh, individuals as having received a punishment from God. What is true in the general may not be true in the specific as Jesus pointed out to his disciples in John 9, uh, that the blind man's illness was neither the result of his own nor his parents' sin. It actually happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. So be careful how you apply this lesson from history. Fifthly, God will respond with mercy when we confess our sins. One of those clear patterns, the clear patterns we find here and elsewhere in the Old Testament is that when God's people repent, he responds in mercy. I remember if you remember when, when God proclaimed his name to Moses back in Exodus chapter 34. Remember what he said? He, it, here it is. He said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, when God's people repent, 
he shows his mercy and grace by forgiving their sins and cleansing them from all unrighteousness. This is the message of the gospel, isn't it? And finally, one of the striking things we discover as we read through the judges is that for all their heroism, none of them brought about a leading solution, a a, a lasting solution to their situation. One reason for that is that the judge always dies. While he's with them, he's able to provide the leadership they need, but as soon as he dies, there's a vacuum that quickly fills with idolatry and immorality. This pattern, of course, continues with the history of the kings, where so much depended on the faithfulness of each successive king. You see, today in churches, where so often a church grows under a particular leader or leaders, but when they leave, uh, so often um, the, the growth can t- seem to taper away because their leadership is gone. The reality is, no human leader can meet all our needs. That's why it's so important to be asking God to lead us by his Holy Spirit to make sure that the main leader in the church is Jesus, not a a human being. You see, the reason God was teaching that lesson through the history of the judges was to prepare us for the leader who was to come who would never die. While no human king will ever meet all our needs, there is one who does. Jesus Christ, the true saviour and judge, is all these human judges could ever be, could never be. He continues with us through the presence of his Holy Spirit, keeping us true to God, forgiving our sins, leading us on the path to eternal life. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the stories of another couple of the early leaders of Israel. None of them are perfect, but I trust we'll learn lessons from each of them that will help us in our worship of Jesus Christ the judge and saviour that they foreshadowed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons we can learn from this account of the judges of the early days of your people. Lord, help us to be people who look to you for guidance, who look to you for salvation. And help us to be people who worship you faithfully throughout our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.